Welcome to Present Value, a new podcast created by students at Cornell University's SC Johnson Graduate School of Management. I'm your host, Michael Brady. This is the second episode in our 10-part season. We're thrilled to have Risa Mish, Professor of Practice of Management, joining us on Present Value. Mish graduated from Cornell Law School in 1988 and practiced labor and employment law in New York City for over a decade. She began her career representing Fortune 500 clients at Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett before moving to Colonzo, Carling, and Mish. She returned to teach at Cornell in 2007, where she now teaches at the S.C. Johnson Graduate School of Management. Professor Mish teaches MBA and executive MBA courses and is a regular keynote speaker at leadership conferences. It's worth noting she's a true fan favorite here at Cornell, and her interests include critical and strategic thinking, leadership development, and human capital issues. Professor Mish, welcome to Present Value. It is my pleasure to be here. Be cautious in judgment. What passes for truth is often only hallowed opinion. That's a reading and interpretation from the Pirkei Avot, also known as Ethics of the Fathers, which is a compilation of ethical teachings used in Judaism. Professor Mish, I know that those words have special meaning to you. Can you share your thoughts on that reading and how it has shaped your worldview? Of course. So in 1972, there was a woman named Sally Prezand, and she was the first woman to be ordained as a rabbi in the United States. And up until that time, I and lots of other girls, I suspect, only thought of people who led our congregations. The only possibility was men. So when Sally Prezan was ordained, it all of a sudden became possible for women to consider becoming rabbis. And I was a little kid at that time, and I remember my rabbi announcing to the congregation this development, and I remember thinking that I, too, was going to become a rabbi. And it's an ambition that I held on to for a lot of years in my childhood and adolescence. As part of that ambition... I went to a summer camp in upstate New York that, among other things, had programs for people who wanted to study the Torah. And in connection with that program, I took a course in liturgical writing, which is the writing of sermons. And I should note here that giving a great sermon is harder than it looks, much like teaching. In that class, uh, we studied the Pirkei Avod, and in fact, the, the passage you read is the very first saying in Pirkei Avod. It's 1-1. And we were asked to interpret the passage. And I remember thinking that the passage was very startling because it seemed to suggest that we should question everything. And the rabbi who was teaching that course told me that that was the correct interpretation. And I then asked him how to reconcile that with notions of faith which at the time to me seemed the very opposite of questioning everything. It seemed more like somebody told you something and you adopted it because you had been told it. And the rabbi told me that the only faith worth having is the faith that's the product of questioning. And he explained that when you encounter something difficult in your life, which all of us will do, if you believe what you believe merely because someone has told you to believe it, then your faith will be rattled. But if your faith has been the product of rigorous questioning, then no matter what happens, your faith will hold firm. And I took that as permission to begin questioning everything, and I have been doing so ever since. 
Was it the questioning of everything that took you from dreams of becoming a rabbi to pursuing a career in law? No, uh, it wasn't quite as straight line as that. I think the dream helped me become a great lawyer because you can't practice law effectively and certainly not as a litigator. If you don't question everything, you must, in some contexts more diplomatically than others. But you can't take at face value a document. You can't take at face value what somebody tells you that they saw. You can't take at face value your own initial conception of the argument or how the case should be tried. Every step of the way, you have to ask, but perhaps why not? And getting into that habit is is one that has stood me in good stead. After finishing law school in 1988, you moved to New York City to practice. Can you tell us about some of the cases that you dealt with? Yes. So I started out at a firm called Simpson, Thatcher & Bartlett. It is a global law firm headquartered in New York City. And I was in the labor and employment law practice representing companies in defense of employment discrimination claims and also in matters brought by labor unions. So I represented the company in arbitrations brought by unions when, for example, a union member had been terminated with what the union believed was without just cause. These kinds of cases, particularly the employment law ones, arise because in our country most employment is employment at will, meaning that the employer can fire you for any reason or no reason so long as it's not a reason that violates public policy. So if you want to challenge a termination decision and you are not in a union context, your only way that you can do that is by asserting that you were fired for discriminatory reasons. So most of the cases that I worked on were defending those kinds of claims brought against companies. Were there particular challenges you faced as a young woman litigating in New York at that time? Yes. When I first got out of law school, there were relatively few female litigation partners. There were some, and they were phenomenal, but not large in number. Today, I'm happy to see that law school classes are actually, many of them, majority female. And so I imagine that there are more female litigation partners today than when I came out of law school almost 30 years ago. And so both from the perspective of the clients and the perspective of opposing counsel, even in some instances from the perspective of judges or arbitrators, it was less common to see women litigating or arbitrating as the lead person in a case. And the advantage of this, which I didn't see initially but came to appreciate, is that you would often get underestimated. And that's a critical thinking error of a kind, you see, and it's one that actually helps you when you realize that when somebody sees you, they don't imagine you to be an effective advocate, and then they find out to the contrary. So would you say that you were able to turn being underestimated into an asset? Yes, both in the sense that I think sometimes opposing counsel didn't prepare as hard. If they knew that they had a female opposing counsel, they would picture you as someone who was an easy mark that you wouldn't be as effective as a litigator. And also, because many of these cases resolve by negotiations and negotiated settlements, they would also underestimate you as a negotiator. While you were litigating in New York as a labor and employment litigator, I understand that a lot of these cases were involving sexual harassment claims. Obviously, we're experiencing a huge cultural reckoning around all these issues right now. Can you tell us about some of those cases at that time, if anything was different then? Sure. So the basic case law was established by the time I came out of law school, and it is still the same today that there are two kinds of sexual harassment. One is called quid pro quo, which is Latin for this for that. So you can imagine what that 
kind of claim is it's a claim that a supervisor used supervisory authority to extract sexual favors from someone whom he or she supervised, either by promising a benefit if the person would convey sexual favors or by punishing or threatening to punish if the person did not provide sexual favors. Those kinds of cases are so obvious that it would be hard for someone to say, well, I I wasn't aware that that would be illegal. That has been illegal for a long time. The quid pro quo law is, is really plainly established. Note that in quid pro quo, only a supervisor can be guilty of that because it's using supervisory authority to extract sexual favors. More complicated is what's called hostile environment claims, and those are claims that either a single severe incident or an accumulation, a pervasive accumulation of incidents, makes it such that the person is unable or is harmed in their ability to work. So the challenge with hostile environment claims is that you can have a stray remark or a single joke or even a single instance of, for example, touching someone on the shoulder or elsewhere. And it's not clear that that would be enough to constitute a hostile environment. There's what's called the reasonable person standard for hostile environment claims. So would a reasonable person hearing or learning of the incidents about which the employee is complaining conclude that the employee would have difficulty doing their job under such circumstances. What has happened in that area of the law is that we have continued to have cases defining who is a supervisor, both for quid pro quo claims, because only a supervisor can engage in quid pro quo harassment, and even in hostile environment cases, because there the standard is the company knew or should have known. If the supervisor is doing the harassment, then knowledge is imputed to the company because the supervisor is acting as the company. That's the case law. For our listeners, we are discussing whether the company as an entity can be held liable for sexual harassment, either in quid pro quo or because of a hostile environment. Of course, there are also other things that come with the harasser themselves being liable. Well, yes, and this is important because under federal law, there is no individual supervisor liability. So if you want to sue the supervisor, you have to state a claim under state law. Some states do permit individual liability on the part of supervisors, but federal law does not. So you are bringing a claim against the company, and therefore you either have to show that the company knew or they should have known. If the supervisor is the one doing the harassing, it's presumed the company knew because the supervisor is the company. But you also are hearing about many cases in which you have coworker harassment, right? And, and in that instance, there has to have been a specific complaint to a supervisor or it has to have been happening so openly that the company should have known it was going on. I understand that the definition of a supervisor is a very important part of proving both quid pro quo and hostile environment harassment. Also, that this definition has evolved over time to narrowly mean someone that has hiring or firing power or that can take tangible action against an employee. You could imagine the definition of a supervisor to also include someone who oversees an employee's day-to-day duties. Exactly. So that's been where a lot of the case law has focused. Is it enough to direct work to be considered a supervisor? And the standard is hire, fire, or discipline. And one of the interesting things is that on the labor law side, in a union context, supervisor can be somebody, for those purposes, who recommends disciplinary action. So it's a broader scope of people who are considered a supervisor. And I suspect that the ongoing challenges and and now what we're seeing with so many high-profile people being accused of harassment, 
that the courts are going to be challenged to think about that definition. And if somebody can effectively recommend discipline, should they also be considered a supervisor for these purposes? You're involved with designing training programs to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. What do those programs look like and how did you approach developing them? Well, the Supreme Court gave rise to an affirmative defense, which would allow a company to argue that even if it were libel, that the punishment should be curtailed because they had taken reasonable preventative measures. So the reasonable preventative measures were relevant to the penalty that the company could be assessed if a supervisor had been found to have engaged in sexual harassment. And the theory behind this is that the company would say, we did all we could. The supervisor essentially went rogue. So many companies began requiring sexual harassment training so that they would have the opportunity to take advantage of this defense and also, one hopes, because they wanted actually to prevent sexual harassment from occurring in the first place. Reflecting back on those training programs, do you think that they were successful and they had an impact or was it just different depending on the implementation? Implementation definitely matters. There are some training modalities that are more effective than others. So this won't probably surprise you, having been a student in my class. I did. I, I used case vignettes, so I would write up uh, sample cases that really tried to fall within the gray area. Because as I've just explained to you, that a hostile environment requires a plaintiff to show either that the conduct was severe or pervasive. And the pervasive one is trickier. So these could be individual events, no one of which was particularly severe, but the accumulation of them created a hostile environment. And because that can be a gray standard, I was trying to draft case scenarios that would help people wrestle with where is the line when this becomes a hostile environment that negatively affects somebody's ability to work. I do think that training mode is better and more effective than simply standing up and telling people what the law is. The Q&A was always pretty rigorous. But can I say for certain that thereafter, no one ever engaged in behavior that would certainly violate a policy or perhaps even at its most extreme, the law? I don't know. I think one of the things that's so challenging about this is that people come to the workplace with a whole history and backstory that the company didn't create and can't always necessarily control. So companies do have a responsibility to be clear about what they will not tolerate, regardless of actually where the legal standard is. Companies should independently have a commitment to the kind of workplace they want to to create and maintain. And the training should really be about that as much, if not even perhaps more than the legal standards. Is there a dynamic that's changed that explains why we are seeing so much of this come to light now? I do think that the entire political environment is raising the stakes for individuals and organizations to think about what they value and what kind of work environment and even more broadly what kind of society we want to have. My own optimism about whether or not this issue will actually result in better workplaces, greater consciousness, is tempered a bit by the fact that we thought that the last time we had a flood of these, which was after the Clarence Thomas Supreme Court hearings. And Anita Hill's testimony, on the heels of that, you saw a dramatic uptick in the number of sexual harassment charges filed at the EEOC. 
And so we thought that then, okay, now we're going to have a lot of attention paid to this. There's going to be a sea change in the way we interact with each other in the workplace. And evidently that wasn't so. And still, I think the EEOC says only one-fourth of these issues actually get reported. Well, yes. And if somebody is going to report it, that's a last resort, right? In a better world, people would be reporting this internally, and the internal complaints would be dealt with in a way that reassured the person coming forward and that even obviated the need to use an administrative process outside the company. One of the things that I learned from litigating is that litigation is a last resort for most people. If there were an easier, better way to handle this at the company level, they absolutely would. And in a lot of ways, I guess that helps explain why I made the transition to teaching. Because if you're litigating, the issues are coming to you at a time when the alleged worst has already happened. And the best that you can do then is to manage that process in a way that helps both parties avoid even the possibility of this kind of allegation going forward and the best resolution for those, those parties involved. Whereas teaching strikes me as you have an opportunity to have an impact on the front end in the way people think about their workplaces and the way they think about problem solving generally. Transitioning a bit, as an expert on labor relations, how do you see the role of unions and their place in society changing over time? So they have changed very dramatically. I will tell you that I used to say to my clients that every company gets the union it deserves. And what I meant by that was that if the company is treating employees well and is giving them a voice and also insights into how the business is being run and what their place in it is and gives them an opportunity to not only make suggestions but to come forward with concerns in a constructive manner if they're heard. Those companies, when there's a union organizing campaign, the union usually doesn't win those campaigns because it's hard to argue that a third party is needed in that situation. On the other hand, there are companies where employees haven't had a voice, they haven't been heard, they have the perception that they are being exploited, and in those environments, a union looks very good to an employee because it should be a partnership. And the one thing I'll say about having a union is that then the partnership is forced, it's required. And so while I represented companies and I probably still have that lingering bias from that experience, I can acknowledge that employees need a voice and they need input and they need to be considered and they are an essential stakeholder group. So either the company regards them as such, or that will be foisted upon them. It's a fascinating perspective. At Present Value, we've been asking our guests about experiences that change their minds or perspectives. Can you share a time when this happened to you? So that's a great question, and it is at the essence of what critical thinking is supposed to be about. We spend a lot of time in class thinking about our own biases and blind spots, and one of the reasons why we don't tend to change our mind is that we cling to our own preconceptions for as long as possible and reject what's called disconfirming evidence. That's evidence that doesn't line up with the hypothesis we had in the first place. So I will tell you that my husband and I have been together for 30 years. And Congratulations. We, thank you. And long before it was chic to talk about sugar, uh, my husband tried to convince me that I should be eating less sugar. 
and he would bring me all kinds of evidence, scientific evidence. And how far ahead was he on this? Very uh, decades. Imp- wow, decades. So very right? impressive. So, so, but but I will tell you that I have not just a sweet tooth. I have a collection of sweet teeth. Uh, I love sweets. I always have. And so because I did not want any of that to be true, I simply refused to believe it was true. A calorie is a calorie is a calorie. Exactly. And that's what you stood by. Exactly. So, you know, all things in moderation, all of that. And so, of course, over the past few years, a lot has come out about the sugar industry and shifting the attention onto fat as opposed to sugar. And so I have been forced to confront all of the evidence in support of my husband's longstanding beliefs. And he will tell you that to get me to say on a podcast, no less, (laughs) you were right and I was wrong is an extraordinary accomplishment. I'll also tell you that it has not had the effect of me eating less sugar. It has the effect of me just feeling bad when I eat the sugar. Oh, no, maybe you're maybe you're worse off now. But maybe that's the beginnings of a change. I suppose. I suppose. Awareness is the first step, they do say. Last time on Present Value, we heard from Professor Frank about how important it is for successful people to recognize luck in their own life. How do you see luck has shaped your life or your career path or maybe serendipity? Yes. So serendipity, I'm a big believer in. I also think, uh, I don't know what the exact quote is, but chance favors the prepared mind, maybe it is. So I think both things are true. It would be folly for any of us to believe that all that we have achieved was solely on the basis of our own efforts. There are so many elements of luck. If you are born into a loving home, as I am the child of two people who 54 years of marriage later still are wildly in love with each other, that is a a great benefit because you start from a place of psychological security. I think you can't put too high a price on that. There were, at the same time, challenges that I needed to overcome. And when I interview people for a job, I used to be a hiring partner in my law firm. My favorite question was, tell me about an obstacle you've overcome. Because I think both things are are important. It is important to acknowledge whatever luck and good fortune you had in your life. And it's also important to think through obstacles, and those can come in many different forms, and how you managed to overcome them. Because I do believe that resilience and the ability to uh, manage around obstacles is equally important to success. In fact, uh, students in a different class that I teach that maybe you'll be in next year, I talk about how when I was in high school and taking high school Latin, we translated a passage called Hannibal Addresses the Troops. And it's about the Carthaginian general trying to convince his troops to engage in a maneuver that to them seems like suicide. And Hannibal utters this line that translates into, I will either find a way or I will make one. And that was just as significant to me as the Pirkei Avot passage you quoted earlier. And probably those two things together are the foundations of the way I approach teaching and life. Your teaching focuses on critical and strategic thinking. Can you take us through what critical and strategic thinking is? Certainly. So I put up a quote on the first day of class, which isn't mine, but I've adopted it. Critical thinking is thinking about thinking while you're thinking in order to make your thinking better. And that may sound flip, but it is absolutely true. And what it gets at is that critical thinking is the opposite of reflex which is the way most people, I think, are making most decisions most of the time. 
It's really having a much more deliberative process where you think about what you know and, importantly, what you do not know that could bear upon a question before you decide. So we spend a lot of time considering what creates information gaps, in particular bias, but not solely that. There are environmental factors that also create information gaps. And then what inferences are reasonable to draw based on the quality information that we do have? And then what else might bring about a contrary outcome or a contrary result? So thinking through counterargument is extremely important. It's what law students spend three years learning how to do and what we try in seven weeks to teach MBAs to do. And can you tell us how you apply these skills or this approach to everyday life? Well, one example that's on my mind right now because uh, so many students and I are talking about it is the recruiting process. So recruiting is a very big part of MBA life. Uh, most people are coming to us, in at least in part, to get a job different and or better than what they could have gotten without the MBA. And yet, as in all interview and, and sales processes, there's, first of all, information asymmetry, right? It's one party knows more than the other. And because there's a lot of impression management that goes on with recruiting, we aren't getting the full story, nor are we giving the full story to the people who are looking to hire us. So what can result from that if we aren't really thoughtful about it is that we end up in places that are not a great fit for us, in roles that perhaps aren't the ones we should be doing. And on the company side, it results in hiring people who on paper meet a lot of the requirements that the company is seeking but maybe aren't the best person for that company or that role or even that industry. Because the temptation to make choices on the basis of what other people in the Sage Atrium will think about the choice you're making, the temptation to make choices based on what you believe you know about that role or industry when in fact you know very little, the temptation to prioritize things that aren't actually what you personally value, but what you're being led to believe you should value. All of those things are critical thinking errors of a kind. So we can use critical thinking to avoid being intoxicated by the allure of a particular industry or the allure of having a particular brand name on our resumes? Well, you should be excited about wherever you're going. So I want to be clear about that. And sometimes there are critically thoughtful reasons to ha want a particular brand on your resume. It's more about knowing why you're doing it and what you know that forms the basis of that decision. So even our ideas about what is prestigious might not be well informed. You know, is it prestigious because everybody in your grandmother's poker game has heard about this company? Is it prestigious because for the place you ultimately want to get to, those gatekeepers value that experience highly? So I'm trying to encourage students to be more refined in their thinking. What do you know? What don't you know that might bear upon the question? What are you assuming? And are those assumptions necessarily valid? Those are three basic information sorting questions that we should all be asking ourselves whenever there is a high stakes decision to be made. In class, what is the framework that you take advantage of to help students apply critical thinking to the cases that you cover? So our cases are about organizational level problems. And the framework that I use in my personal practice and that I teach in the course is the congruence model. It was developed in the 1980s by a Columbia University professor named David Nadler. McKinsey has a version of this same framework called 7S. And the goal of the framework is to identify areas of misalignment between and among 
the organization's strategy and its culture, structure, people, and tasks. The theory behind the framework is that all organizational performance problems are attributable either to a misalignment between strategy and one or more of those organizational elements, that is culture, structure, people, and tasks, or incongruence between and among those organizational elements. And what's a way that people outside of graduate school or MBA school can actually like use critical thinking to attack the issues that we face and read about? Each of us is confronted on a daily basis with very large decisions and sometimes small decisions and sometimes medium-sized decisions. So the first thing I'll say is that there is a place for intuitive decision-making and that, that is not what we've been talking about is critical thinking. And the two circumstances I tell people that you can just decide in an emergency or where the consequences of the decision are very small. Because critical thinking is work, and sometimes we don't have the time and we needn't spend the time if the stakes are small or if there's an emergency and literally you have no time. The trick, though, is that most decisions fall somewhere in the middle. They are neither emergencies nor inconsequential. And for those kinds of decisions, simply asking yourself the three questions, what do I know and how do I know it? What don't I know? That is, what information is missing that could bear upon the question? What am I assuming and are those assumptions valid? Just if you asked yourself those three questions, you'd be more critically thoughtful than 99% of the people walking around. I see that asking yourself those kinds of questions might also help the posteriori justification that we often see happening where it's like, oh, I made this decision and then now I'm going to use my intellect to basically justify why I made that decision. Yeah. Asking yourself those questions up front might hopefully force you into, into a healthy critical thinking exercise before that decision. Well, that and partnering with other people, because just as it's very difficult to edit your own paper, it's very difficult to spot your own biases. So just running the analysis through with somebody who, whom you trust can help you see what it is you are personally missing. I'll also say that I tell people who want to practice critical thinking skills, and they're outside of a university such as this, you may be surprised what I'm going to say here. Watch the television show Shark Tank. Shark Tank is basically one long critical thinking uh, exercise. You see entrepreneurs coming forward with an idea that they think is world-changing and listen and watch the questions that they are asked by the sharks, which are almost always geared around the exact same three questions we just asked. Like, what do you actually know and how do you know it? What information is missing that you're not thinking about? What are you assuming that actually isn't valid? So if you've watched that show, or if you want, you can read an op-ed and just try to diagnose the argument. What is this person wanting me to conclude? What information are they giving me in support of that conclusion? What information might be out there that would cause me to reach a conclusion that's opposite than the one this person is pitching? Either of those things can help you hone, refine, practice critical thinking skills. Much of your work in the classes that you teach revolves around solving conflicts between people. Can you tell us about why you've chosen those particular kinds of conflicts? Yes. There are a number of reasons. One, the most obvious is that it relates back to my own professional training and experience in labor and employment law. All of those disputes are ultimately disputes about and between people, even though there's a company on one side, often really it's a dispute between an employee and a supervisor, for example. And you can't defend the company well if you think of it as a company rather than the people at the company who made the decisions that are being contested. So one is just that it, it's a callback to that training. 
But the second reason, and I think it's actually the more important reason, is that disputes between and among people are inherently filled with ambiguities. It's harder to get an answer to those kinds of questions by formula. We can teach you frameworks that are very helpful tools, but there will always be context variations because no two people is exactly alike. And so issues that have a lot of ambiguity in them are the best ones to train people in terms of how to think, how to process, how to be strategic, which is a little different than critical thinking. Strategic thinking is about how do you advance objectives, define objectives first, and then make decisions that advance those objectives. Critical thinking more broadly is about what do you know and how do you know it, and are you certain you know it, and what inferences are you entitled to draw from what you know? Frameworks can give you a tool that certainly can be useful. We're inundated with frameworks everywhere. Three different ways to optimize feeding your cat. <laughs> <laughs> I see a risk where people give the framework deference and then it could lead you to miss opportunities to, you know, identify issues or something because, you know, there's always a risk that a framework's not complete. Could you comment on the degree to which you see frameworks being useful? Yes. So a framework is a tool. It's not the answer. And if we extend the tool metaphor just a bit, you don't want to be a hammer in search of a nail. So the biggest risk with frameworks is that people will mash the facts into the framework, whether the framework is right for this type of problem or not. So you shouldn't be doing that. Number one is you should have a broad array of frameworks at your disposal. Although we use one framework for the substance of the types of problems we're solving, we have a meta framework within that framework. And so what you want is to have an array of frameworks at your disposal to recognize the type of problem you're solving, to match the framework to the problem type. And then you still have to, after you go through the framework, step all the way back and say, are there any facts that don't fit neatly in this framework that also need to be accounted for? But the advantage of the frameworks, especially the ones that are well-known and have been used repeatedly and have been tested in a number of contexts, is that they insulate you from the effects of your own biases. So we talk a lot about this in class. Whatever your past experience is will incline you to see a problem through the lens of that experience. And that could cause you to miss real categories of root causes. Whereas if you go through every bucket of the framework, you will have accounted for the universe of likeliest causes of that type of problem. So I do think they're helpful. They're just a tool, though, not the answer. You helped shape the leadership program into its current form at Johnson. Can you tell us about why it's so team intensive? So all of our students are assigned to core teams of five to six students with whom they go through the first year core curriculum and with whom they execute six team deliverables across a number of core courses. And what is good about the program, I think, is that it gives everyone on the team the chance to have a real peer team leadership experience. Leading peers is probably the most challenging of all leadership contexts. It's one thing to lead by dint of hierarchy and formal authority. It is much harder to lead when you have only the barest of formal authority, which is the authority the team gave you by choosing you as the leader for that assignment. So it is a good laboratory for learning how to lead. If you can lead under those circumstances, then when you leave us and you are leading teams where you have a little more formal authority, it should be a little bit easier. I believe in this program because so many problems in business are not solved as solo artists. 
but rather in teams and cross-functional teams at that. And so learning how to identify your teammates' strengths and figure out a way to leverage those strengths, learning about the importance of process as well as task, because it's very easy just to focus on the task that has to be executed, and you learn sometimes the hard way that process matters at least as much and that what process does is help you create a culture and an environment where people can bring their strengths to bear on the collaborative solving of that problem. Do you think it's the process of leading teams of peers that really teaches you how to be a leader in that way? Or are people just born with that ability, they need a little bit of exposure, and they can hit the ground running? Basically, how much do you think of this kind of leadership can can actually be taught? Quite a bit, because there are real skill components to this kind of leadership. So the difference between an innate talent, that's you're born with it, and a skill. Skills are developed. You can have all the talent in the world, but if you don't develop those skills through practice and more particularly through the feedback that you get after you practice, then it's really just a theoretical gift. We want actually to be able to evoke your natural talents and give you some tools by practice and feedback that you develop what it is you have to work with. There are so many different styles that are possible and can be effective in various contexts. So another thing this does is give you a chance to test out those styles and try and think through, was the style I used for the context of that assignment and for where the context of where my team members were at that particular time, the optimal style? So you get some practice flexing. And that's really helpful. I have to ask you about your style. You are celebrated at Cornell for giving these captivating three-hour lectures, courses that students are clamoring to get into. Where does that energetic and dynamic personality come from? So can I, can I borrow from Lady Gaga and say I was born this way? Um, <laughs> I, I think some of that is personality. So one of the most important things, I think, in teaching is to be true to who you are. So they can assign you a mentor. I was assigned a mentor, and she was this spectacular teacher, And there might be some things that we have in common, but each of us has to find our own way. And so one of the things that I think I would say to people coming into the field and new to teaching is you can watch people who manage a classroom well and you can learn some classroom management techniques. Those things, I think, can be learned. Ultimately, you have to show up authentically to the students. And so my way may be a very high energy and sometimes high drama style, but someone else can be equally effective who has a much quieter style than I do. Or as one of my professors used to say to me in law school, everybody doesn't have to swing from the chandelier the way you do, right? And I I think that's true. I, I try to show up as who I am every single time because if you don't, you're spending a lot of energy tamping down who you are, and that's energy you don't have available to be excellent. So number one is you know who you are and show up who you are. The other thing is that I'm doing something that I absolutely love. There is just no doubt in my mind that there is nothing I would more want to be doing than what I am doing. And I meant what I said in the last day of class that I think I got to, in my own way, be a rabbi of sorts, right? Rabbi is Hebrew for teacher. And there's a real connection, I think, between what I'm doing now and what I thought I would be doing back in 1972 when Sally Prezan became the first. I also have to ask you about, you landed a very coveted New York Times wedding announcement. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, uh, 30 years ago. How exactly did you pull that off? 
John and I submitted that at a time when the New York Times was still running engagement announcements, as a matter of fact. So that announcement you found is, is a real relic. The New York Times changed its policy maybe, I think, maybe the year after ours ran, uh, that they would only run wedding announcements. And that's probably a prudent policy, given the number of people who had splashy engagement announcements and then never made it to the altar. Uh, we did make it to the altar, I hasten to add, and, and we are happily married for more than 25 years. I don't actually know how the New York Times makes those decisions. If I had to guess, I would suspect it had something to do with the fact that I was working at Simpson Thatcher at the time and John was getting his PhD in English here at Cornell and the combination of those brands must have been enticing enough. But I have taken a lot of grief over the years for that engagement announcement, may I tell you. Professor Mish, thank you so much for coming on Present Value. It was really excellent having you. It was my extreme pleasure. Thank you. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the S.C. Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Caroline Wright, Chris Alberico, and Harrison Job, who is also our editor. I'm your host, Michael Brady. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz, music by Poddington Bear, logo by Kelechi Pamango, and special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to present value.